Hello and welcome back to Creator Talks. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. I'm releasing this week's episode early on a Monday instead of a Thursday because it contains time-sensitive information. My guest today is writer David Lucarelli. His new comic series is Tinseltown. It is a five-issue limited series being published by Alterna Comics. And the artist on the series is Henry Ponciano. Final order cutoff through Diamond is this Thursday, January 18th. Each issue will be printed on newsprint and is only $1.50 each. So if you like what you hear during my discussion with David, contact your local comic shop to reserve a copy. David has explained to me why it is so important to have pre-orders in and letting your comic shop know that you're interested in a book. And with alternate books, sometimes it's difficult to get a reorder fulfilled through Diamond. So it's really important that if you do like what you hear and you do want to get the book, that you do pre-order by Thursday. And if you're a vampire lover, David and I also talk about his other series, The Children's Vampire Hunting Brigade, Volume 1, The Guardians of the Southern Necropolis, and Volume 2, Age of the Wicked. And there is a third volume in the works. Now, the introduction in Volume 1 is written by Stephen Baines, and David and I talk about that introduction because it explains the inspiration for this story that it was based on real-life events. David and I also talk about his 80s-style hard rock band, Dame Fortune, and why he thinks KISS is one of the most influential bands of the 70s. Let's get started with my interview, David Lucarelli, here now on Creator Talks. Welcome to Creator Talks. Thank you. Happy to be here. It's always bad to talk about the weather with people. It's like, oh, don't you have anything else to talk about? But I have to bring this up, and you've probably seen it on the news. Now, you live in Hollywood, California, and boy, do I wish I was in California right now, because today, as we're recording this, when I got up this morning, it was two degrees out. And that just doesn't happen around here very much. I mean, occasionally, we get teens in the wintertime every several years. This was yeah. really unusual. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, I could uh, freeze an egg on the sidewalk. It was so cold. Wow. Uh, yeah, uh, but uh, it's going to warm up to like fifty next week. So, okay. <laughs> very bizarre, but uh, I'll take it. You have written comics within the horror genre, but this one coming up of yours is very different, and it's very personal for you. The central character is Officer Abigail Moore, and that is a tribute to your mother who worked for the Pittsburgh Police Department starting back in the 80s. What kind of person was she, Miriam Lucarelli? Yeah, she worked for the, uh, she was an officer for the Pittsburgh Police for about 20, a little more than 20 years. It's interesting. Uh, she was one of the first female police officers in the uh, late 70s, early 80s. And at the time, there weren't a whole lot of them, and they weren't necessarily treated all that well, uh, particularly by some of their male counterparts. So in a very real way, she was kind of a trailblazer. And I very much admired her and and respected her for that. And um, it got me thinking about what it would have been like for some of the first female police officers in history. So I I did a little research, and I found out that in the early 1900s Los Angeles, the LAPD actually started hiring a few female police officers because they had problems with underage teenage runaways and prostitutes, 
and the male police officers weren't really comfortable doing strip searches with them for obvious reasons. So they hired a few female uh, police officers that weren't really full-fledged officers. They had very specific duties like that that they were assigned to. And I discovered at the same time that uh, there was a very interesting situation going on at Universal Studios circa around 1915. And that was that Universal was kind of a proto-feminist organization. It sort of saw itself as its own independent city, apart from Los Angeles, which in some ways it was. And it had a female mayor, a female police chief, and it hired some female police officers. Now, as point of fact, the female police officers also weren't really full-fledged officers. They functioned as kind of a cross between security guards and lot actors that were there to uh, help and amuse the tourists. So it was that historical situation that inspired my new book, Tinseltown, about one of the first female officers in Hollywood. The book is dedicated to your mother in a way because of Officer Abigail Moore in the book. Did your mother ever come home with stories about working on the police force that illustrated some of the the problems that she would run into with her fellow officers or with civilians? Oh, yeah. (laughs) She came home with a lot of stories. You know, it's it's interesting. Um, She had a meat cleaver thrown at her once on the job. Uh, It missed her. (laughs) But, you know, the thing that I found is because I grew up around a lot of police officers and my mother would always say uh, that there are good cops. Most cops are good cops and try to be good cops. Um, But there are also fellow officers that are as bad or worse than any of the people that they arrest and that you need to be aware of both of those things. And one example that I can give, and I guess you know, I, I can talk about this now. My mom passed away a, a few years ago. There was one incident where uh, she showed up for work and the guy that was working the desk uh, was late at night. They were alone. He had been drinking and he pulled out his revolver and put a single bullet in the chamber and put the gun up to my mother's head and pulled the trigger and played Russian roulette with her. Oh. And luckily, (laughs) there was not a bullet in that chamber, but it was a a huge incident. There was actually an article about it that made its way as far as the New York Times. But, you know, he was not prosecuted. He was not even fired for that incident. He was, I think, suspended for a week or so without pay. But, uh, you know, it was a different era. And... um, he got away with it. Man, it sure was a different era. I mean, look at it now. <laughs> yeah. What do you think your mother and other women in the police force brought to the role that their male counterparts lacked? And I would think that their ability to negotiate certain situations might be better. Uh, they might be more of a negotiating type and a little less aggressive, and that may actually help them. I mean, am I on the right track? I mean, what did they bring to the, the force that the males just didn't quite have? Well, yeah, you're absolutely right. And you can see that if you watch some episodes of things like Cops, there are certain types of male cops that will go in there like gangbusters and not take the time to actually assess the dynamics of the situation or what's really going on. And, you know, they come in uh, all guns blazing. And it's just like throwing fuel on the fire, right? 
you know, there is some physicality involved in police work, but a lot of it really has to do with listening to people and ascertaining where they're at in extreme situations, you know, and the way my mother explained it to me is, okay, yes, you've broken the law. And yes, maybe you've done something that you never thought you would do. And there was something that drove you to it and you've been caught. Okay. But you're still a human being. And I understand that you were probably, there was something extreme, perhaps a painful situation that led you to do what you did. And just because you've broken the law and I've caught you doesn't mean that I'm not going to treat you like a human being. Wow. She could have written a novel of all of her events and stories and things that she went through. Oh, yeah. And as a matter of fact, we were going through some of her effects and uh, we found a letter that was written by a nun. And it was basically just praising her, saying that she had come into an extremely volatile, potentially dangerous situation and was able to diffuse it. And that, you know, this nun wrote that she would be eternally grateful for the way that she handled it. You know, the letter didn't get into the exact specifics, but it did make me proud. So she must have been quite the inspiration for you, both your parents. But I can see from your mother's experience, she must have been a tremendous inspiration. Oh, yeah. I'll I'll tell you one other um, quick story that she told me about working on the force in the 80s. Right when she was going to become a cop the sergeant took her to the top of one of the buildings uh, and police headquarters and, and said, okay, I want you to look out the window and see all those people there. Now, I want you to focus on one person. If there was a person and that person had a gun and your life or the life of somebody else was in danger, could you take your gun and fire and kill that person. And my mother said, yes, I I think I could do that. And he said, well, then I think you can be a police officer. Amazing. You know, back to the book, I was wondering, how did you wind up syncing up with Peter to have this published through Alterna? Um, You know, I was aware of Alterna. I think that they publish a lot of really uh, cool books and I, I was excited about the fact that they were bringing back the newspaper format because I grew up in the 70s and 80s, and I remember the days when every comic was essentially printed on newsprint. You know, it was something that you rolled up in your back pocket and you rolled off uh, on your bicycle to, to read, you know, back at your house, and you didn't worry about the condition or anything like that. So I think it's a really cool thing. I think... The other neat thing is that he's getting distribution for the books on newsstands. And I love comic book shops, but, you know, that's where I discovered my first comics was on the newsstand. So, you know, in some ways, I think the future of comics may lie in going back to the past in a little bit. There's nothing like the smell of comics on newsprint, especially as they get older. (laughs) It's one of the things I like about collecting the old books is that they have that newsprint smell to them. Absolutely. And then, you know, uh, Tinseltown is a five-issue miniseries. If it does well, hopefully we'll be able to collect it in a slightly more prestige format and that kind of thing. You know, the great thing about Alterna's books is they're a dollar to a dollar fifty each. So literally for the price of buying one or one and a half normal priced books, you can try three or four Alterna books and they're all really good. I think it's a great concept. I love the idea. I love books that have a historical basis and having this based in old Hollywood, based somewhat on Universal Studios back then, 
It's just a great concept and of this woman who really wants to be a police officer in the worst way, but it's not quite what she expected, but hey, she'll take it, you know, (laughs) it's a way in. That's right. That's right. You know, it's funny. The book that I did before this, The Children's Vampire Hunting Brigade, is kind of a coming of age adventure horror book. And on the surface, they're very different books, but they're also both about characters that are looking to find their place in the world. And that world is very often completely indifferent to their to what they want and often openly hostile. So from that perspective, they're they're kind of similar books. Well, we're going to get back to both of those books because you have the same artist on them. But as people know who listen to the show, this is Creator Talks, and I do talk to the creator about themselves and their lives. And looking at your background, I was fascinated. You work in Hollywood now, and you have worked on a number of movies and TV shows, including The Simpsons, Minority Report, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, Deadpool, X-Men, Age of the Apocalypse, just to name a few. You have a long list. Star Wars, The Force Awakens. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of movies. Well, so what I do in my day job, I am what's known as an ADR recordist. So uh, actors and actresses come in to redo or add or replace lines of dialogue for TV and film. And I'm one of the guys that uh, sets it up and records it and takes notes and runs the Pro Tools system and that kind of thing. So uh, I've been doing that now for about 19 years. And... um, you know, worked on a lot of shows over that time. I just worked on The Greatest Showman, which is in theaters now, and um, work on The Simpsons all the time. That's a real fun show to work on. In a way, I think it's really helped me uh, with my writing ability because basically what I do is I sit there all day and I listen to lines of dialogue or voiceover. Uh, written by some of the top writers in Hollywood, read by some of the top actors, and directed by some of the top directors. And I watch them try to fine-tune those lines of dialogue and the inflections and uh, try to make them work as best they can. How did you get interested in doing that kind of work? Well, you know, I've always been interested in it. I mean, I guess I was the kid that as soon as I got a tape recorder before the days of VCRs, I would record all of my favorite shows off the TV, just the audio. And, um, you know, I had a four track growing up. I, I played in bands. There wasn't really a major for being a rock star, but I knew I wanted to be out in Los Angeles to be part of the 80s metal scene. And uh, so I came out here and I got a Bachelor of Science in Recording Arts from USC. I'm originally from Pittsburgh. So, you know, there's a little bit of a filmmaking community in Pittsburgh. And I'm a huge, huge George Romero fan. But the, the 80s metal scene was pretty much central to L.A. And how did you end up working for Fox? You know, I graduated USC with a Bachelor of Science. I worked for a few years as a runner at various studios. I worked my way up to Tape Vault Librarian, worked my way up to being the head of the transfer department and doing a little bit of ADR recordist work. But the company that I was working for basically went under and we all had to sign contracts saying that the new company wasn't legally responsible for paying us any of the money the old company uh, owed us. You know, it's a little bit like the Wild West out here in some ways. <laughs> and uh, so basically, I sent out a resume to every signatory in town. And one of the places I heard from was Fox. And the rest is history. Now, you've worked with them for like 19 years in this kind of ADR work. 
What was the toughest job you ever had and what made it so difficult? The toughest job I ever had? Um, <laughs> you know, um, there's certain directors that are known to be very demanding. And uh, I don't think I'm, I'm revealing any secrets here when I say that uh, Michael Mann is, is one of those directors. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and he loves working with us. So we have worked with him on, on many a film and it's always a challenge because he is um, very much a, a micromanager and he will do dozens of takes sometimes approaching a hundred takes of a single line to try to get what he's hearing. It must be pretty satisfying when he's pleased, you know, to please somebody who's that demanding. Well, yeah, you say, whew, but then there's the next line. So. <laughs> <laughs> and who is probably the most interesting person you've encountered working in the business? Um, you know, I'm a big fan of Bob Zemeckis as a director and as a person. I just have a lot of respect for the way that he operates. And he is not afraid to delegate authority. He's got a great team of people that work under him. And he just seems like he's, he's a guy that is genuinely interested in other people's opinions and interested in other people's lives. And he uses all of that to make some really great movies. You know, I would be remiss now if I didn't take this moment to segue from sound recording to recording your own sound, you mentioned that you were in a band, Dame Fortune. You have put out there three hard-rocking albums, at least, musically inspired by arena rock bands of the 80s, with lyrics inspired by legendary comic book writers like Alan Moore, Neil Gaiman, Frank Miller. All three albums are on iTunes. It's been several years since you released an album. Do you ever plan to make another one anytime soon? Um, yes, we will be making some new music, uh, relatively soon. We have those three albums out. We have recorded a couple of other songs and we have some other songs that are in the process of being recorded. Um, what's likely to happen is there will be an EP that will be released with the Kickstarter of the next brigade project. What really stopped us in our tracks was our drummer was killed in an auto accident and <clears throat> that was tragic. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I literally saw him the day before he died, and he was supposed to come over to my condo uh, the next day. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that was hard to process. And then our bass player has been dealing with some potentially very serious uh, health issues as well. So we want to continue doing the band, uh, but at the same time, his health comes first and we don't want to put any undue pressure on him. That said, like, like I said, we have at least a couple songs that are in the can. And I think there's going to be a song that'll specifically tie into uh, the comic for the next Kickstarter. And we have a few other songs that are almost ready for prime time. How did the band first get together? Was that through school? So basically, um, you know, I'd played in bands since high school and one of the guys that was one of my best friends, we played in rival bands. Our bands used to open up for each other and stuff. A guy named Mike Gavigan. So Mike said to me, hey, we really need to put together a band and uh, go out to Los Angeles and see what we can do. And so finally, I convinced him to move out here. And, you know, we were really active from about 2000 to 2010. And we played a lot of shows. And, you know, we, we got some 
positive feedback and sales and reviews in Germany and Japan. And, you know, we took it to the point where we could be headlining some of the clubs in Hollywood on a Friday or Saturday night and uh, make, making a couple hundred bucks per night and that kind of thing, which in L.A. is not that easy to do. You know, in terms of impact, we couldn't really take it beyond there. Unfortunately, at the same time we were putting the band together and playing out, the record industry was kind of collapsing. And do you have, out of all your output, a favorite song or one that you're most proud of? You know, I don't know. They're they're all kind of my babies. Um, but one that might be more relevant to this show is uh, there's a song called The Days Are Just Packed, which was inspired by my favorite comic strip of all time, Calvin and Hobbes. I actually named my son Calvin after Calvin and Hobbes. That's <laughs> great. Actually, in a series of uh, postmodern life imitating art, before my son was born, we were recording the song and I had my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, record her voice saying, Calvin, you know, as if she was his mother calling him in from playing outside. And then, of course, Calvin wasn't even a a gleam in uh, our eyes at the time, but it all came true anyway, as Alan Moore would say. A couple that I really like are Hollywood Oh yeah, and I Want a Girl Like Betty Page. I Want a Girl Like Betty Page. Yeah, that's a fun one. That's That kind of has a little punk rock edge to it, uh, which we're not really a punk rock band per se, but, you know, we can do that too. I want, I want, I want. I want a girl like Betty Page with a Hollywood's an interesting song. So um, that song is actually a bit of a cover. I rewrote it and sort of rearranged it a bit, but it was originally written by a group called the Kids of Whitney High. And that was a group that was um, put together by a bunch of kids that are disabled. 
Um, it's like a school program for disabled kids. The way that I found out about them was there was a guy named Tony Whitfield who um, was a huge comic book fan and a huge Kiss fan. And I myself am a huge Kiss fan. So I, I met him at various uh, Kiss and comic book related events. And as a former member of the Kids of Whitney High, he was always promoting it and, and things like that. Now, unfortunately, Tony passed away a number of years ago due to cancer. But before he did, he asked me as a musician and sound engineer to write a letter to some of the powers that be to let them know how valuable an organization I thought this was. Part of what we did as a tribute to Tony Whitfield was we recorded the song Hollywood as well. See the stars Those are worth checking out if folks haven't heard them before. Go ahead and go into iTunes and sample a few of those. You'd be pretty surprised. They're, they're really good. Well, thanks, man. Now, you've also been a big fan of horror since you were a wee lad, like you know, six years old. Yeah. Did you also have uh, creature features in your area? I mean, I, I see you mentioned once uh, you used to watch Chili Billy. I'm not from the Pittsburgh area, so I never saw that. But is that something like what they have now, Sven Gulli? That's uh, syndicated in many markets throughout the country, which is kind of horror with some humorous segues. Exactly. Yeah. Pittsburgh actually had two horror hosts, uh, Chili Billy, who went on to become a newscaster. And I think he actually, I want to say um, he actually has a cameo in the very first Night of the Living Dead movie, too. And there was another one named Scorpio, who's even lesser known than Chili Billy. But yeah, I, as a kid, I just naturally tuned into that. I think maybe Scooby-Doo was the gateway drug, but I remember very vividly, uh, you know, my dad took me to my first haunted house when I was in second grade, and uh, I saw Halloween uh, the summer of second grade. It was on cable, and I was at my cousin's, and I probably shouldn't have seen that film when I was that young, but uh, <laughs> it kind of scarred me for life. But yeah, I was always naturally drawn to that stuff. And actually, as a matter of fact, I've got sort of three major projects happening this year, all hitting uh, relatively within the same period. I am doing a theatrical production in Los Angeles called Dr. Zamba's Ghost Show of Terror. And what that is, in the 1950s, before haunted houses became very popular, they would four-wall movie theaters and they would put on a show of kind of spooky, dark magic 
sometimes played for laughs, a little spiritualism, a little hypnotism, uh, mind reading, ghostly related stuff. And they might show a double feature of horror films with it. But the climax of each show was called a blackout sequence. And the entire theater would be enveloped in total blackness and the monsters and the ghosts would all come alive and come out and terrify the audience. And they had all kinds of special tricks up their sleeve to make that happen and to make it a lot of fun. So that was actually really popular in the 1940s, 50s, kind of died out by the early 70s. I'm making it my mission to bring it back with kind of a modern twist. And uh, that's going to be Dr. Zamba's Ghost Show of Terror, which will be debuting in the Fringe Festival uh, end of May and throughout June of this year. You do also have the horror series referred to a while back, the Children's Vampire Hunting Brigade, and the first volume was The Guardians of Southern Necropolis, and it's based on an actual event that occurred in Scotland. Yes. Possibly a case of mass hysteria amongst hundreds of children? So what it was is in the 1950s in the Southern Necropolis, uh, hundreds of school children went looking for a vampire. Uh, They thought he was seven feet tall and had iron teeth, and they believed he had killed a couple of local children. So they stormed the Southern Necropolis Cemetery armed with steak knives and sticks and torches. Over the course of several nights, the police tried to disperse it, and they couldn't. Uh, Eventually, I think there was a local pastor from one of the schools that, you know, kind of rounded up the kids and got them to go home on the first night. And then they came back for a couple more nights after that. Um, It made headlines in the newspaper, and uh, it was considered mass hysteria. It was blamed on comic books. Um, There were actually trials that were held before the House of Commons that cited the incident as an excuse to ban the importation of American comic books into the UK. And people thought that it was caused by a comic book, although nobody actually was able to come up with a comic book at the time. So flash forward all these years later, Steve discovered that there actually was a comic book from that period called The Vampire with Iron Teeth. It's not a particularly scary comic book, but the modern consensus is it may have been conflated with an urban legend about the Iron Man of the Gorbals that parents would tell their kids, you know, go to sleep or the Iron Man of the Gorbals is going to get you or don't go to that cemetery because that's where the Iron Man of the Gorbals is. And they may have conflated those two and come up with this seven-foot-tall vampire. Now, in our book, they find what they're looking for, and they form the Children's Vampire Hunting Brigade, which is kind of like the He-Man Woman Haters Club, right? I I wanted to get that (laughs) title that the children would have called themselves as a club. Flash forward a half century later, our two young heroes, Gavin and Doug, are drinking in that same cemetery, the night the vampires come back. So far, I believe you have two volumes of that title out. The other one is Age of the Wicked. And did you plan a third? So there is going to be a third and final volume. Uh, What happened after volume two was I got invited to be a guest at uh, Glasgow Comic-Con, which was a terrific experience. Um, I had my first sold-out show. I got my own private uh, tour of the Southern Necropolis Cemetery. And I got to do lots of research uh, for volume three and got to see all the stuff that I got right, all the stuff that I got wrong. And I think volume three, in in a way, obviously it's fantasy, but it's also going to be uh, the most exciting and the most authentic. 
Wow, that's great because you can have a chance to do all that research and dig a little further into it. Exactly. It's one thing to read about these places. It's another thing entirely to see them and smell them and taste them and be there in person. And all the artwork in these books are black and white with gray tones. And the artist on the book, Henry Ponciano, he's on those books as well as Tinseltown. Yeah, and Tinseltown is our first color work together. Uh, Henry's great. You know, he's very versatile. I mean, you know, the style that he's drawing Tinseltown in is not the same style that he did Thus the Brigade books. We actually have one other story that we did that was in color, a four-page short story called The Legend of the White Lady, which is available in an anthology called Monsters and Other Scary Shit, which was put out by Wannabe Press. And that was inspired. There's another urban legend about the Southern Necropolis Cemetery. Uh, There's a statue that's called the White Lady. And it's kind of like Bloody Mary. You're supposedly, if you walk around the statue three times and you say, White Lady, White Lady, White Lady, she comes alive and she kills you. We were able to uh, come up with an interesting story about the White Lady that had to do with the fact that there's a particular type of Scottish vampire that's also referred to as the White Ladies. What I like about all these is they're all tied to something, either some kind of lore or something parents would tell their kids. It's some basis in reality for it. There's something in history that you can go back and look at and tie to it. Those seem to be the things that inspire me, right, is finding an interesting situation or an interesting event in history and saying, well, what would it have been like to be there? Or, well, I know what the popular explanation for that happening is, but what if they're wrong? Now, tell me about Henry. You've been working with him for a while now. Uh, Why are you sticking with him, other than the art looks great? Well, thank you. Um, You know, we've been working together for so long, almost five years, and we've never actually met. He lives in the Philippines, and so we're constantly IMing each other and and sending stuff back and forth through Dropbox. But um, it's just a really comfortable relationship because I don't have to write overly detailed scripts at this point. He kind of knows how I think, and I can just put down the bare minimum, and it's almost like he's reading my mind. You know, it's funny. As a matter of fact, in the new book, which is coming out, the third volume of The Brigade, called All Souls Day, there's a scene in which some bats appear, and Henry just took it upon himself to make the bats have human faces, and I saw that and he goes, oh, I, you know, I made the bats have human faces. I, I said, you know, I was going to ask you to do that anyway, but I forgot to put it in the script. Because <laughs> um, when we went to the Southern Necropolis Cemetery, there are a couple of really interesting Batman sculptures that are in the apartment building directly across from the cemetery where there are these giant bats that have human faces. So we are communicating telepathically now, I think. Now, how did you find Henry? Did you put out a call for an artist? Was it just searching through the internet? You found a list of artists and selected him. How did you go about connecting with him? What I did is I put a classified ad on DeviantArt, which is not easy to find. It doesn't actually come up on their homepage. You have to kind of Google classified ads in DeviantArt. But I did that, and I was surprised at the overall quality of artists that responded. Um, you know, I, I got responses from a lot of really good artists, and you know, they weren't necessarily right for the brigade, but they were still highly, highly talented. And originally, I had a different artist for the brigade, 
and I published the first issue where it was half of his art and half of Henry's art because he sort of fell off the face of the earth. <laughs> and uh, what happened was Creators Edge Press expressed interest in publishing the four individual issues as a graphic novel and then publishing the second graphic novel. You know, they wanted the art to be consistently done by one person. So uh, we did that. And Henry uh, went back and redid the first pages that were done by the former artist. And at the time, it was a pain. But in hindsight, I think it was uh, the right move. That's something I really appreciate that because there's been a lot of series lately by some publishers, and I've mentioned this before in the show, where the artist changes up. Oh, yeah. And sometimes it tremendously hurts the book. You have a great script. And the artist that you pick, that you get paired with sometimes, is very, very important. It can sometimes make or break a book. And I'd rather wait to see the same team together, even if there's a delay. And I know it can hurt sales, but I'd rather wait because the end product, when it all comes together, especially as a graphic novel, is what you want. Yeah, because you get used to looking at the characters appearing a certain way. Um, you know, I mean, the, the prime example for me is the original run of Grimjack. Right. The first artist, Timothy Truman on Grimjack, was so good that when they switched artists, even though they were good artists, it, you know, to me, the art looked like a caricature of what he drew. And it, it really pulled you out of the book. Yeah, I've seen uh, artists that are almost photorealistic be switched over to someone who's more of a cartoon style. And exactly. each in their own right is fine. But when you try to mix the two for the same story, I'm yanked right out of it. Yeah, it doesn't work. And I mean, it's one thing if you're you're doing pinup pages of the same character and they do it in a different style. That I can accept. But for sure, you want some consistency when you're when you're reading the book. What is it about Henry's style that had him be the right person for your books? Um, well, in terms of the brigade, definitely he draws some influences from guys like Mike Magnolia, people like that. But I think he's really good at drawing people that look like real people. And, you know, there's a lot of artists out there that can draw buff superheroes and get all the muscles in the right place. And everybody looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger. And that's great. But, you know, I'm trying to tell a story about a couple of 16 year old boys. And in Tinseltown, I'm telling a story about a young woman in 1915 in her early 20s. So she doesn't need to look like Wonder Woman or anything like that. She needs to look like a real person. That is the challenge. All those people are like, I want to be an artist, and they draw superheroes. Well, can you draw a short person, a tall person, a young person, an old person, a fat person, a skinny person? It, all those variables are there. Right. And there are some really talented artists that, you know, it has to be said, tend to draw a lot of faces, a lot of characters that look awfully similar. That's not a problem that Henry has. I've, I've never once had to look at his art and not know who a character was supposed to be. I was listening to a podcast recently, and uh, one of my former guests is actually on the podcast, Dawn Griffin. She mentioned the silhouette test, and can oh, you distinguish right. a character in silhouette from the other characters? So I thought, oh, that's a really good idea. Yeah, it's funny that you mention that, because Henry will very often do things with silhouettes that are terrific, and he's able to do that because he's able to differentiate the characters he draws. He's an excellent pick, and I'm looking forward to seeing Tinseltown when it comes out and the entire series because I read the first issue. I'm already hooked. I love the way it looks, and it reads so well because your ability to write characters, the dialogue, that makes the book 
work. Well, thank you. Because not everybody can pull that off. <laughs> I'll tell you, they cannot always pull it off. Oh, thank you. That that means a lot to me. You know, I, I think in Tinseltown, Henry, obviously he's got his own style, but I think he's also in certain places channeling a little bit of Dave Stevens. And Dave is one of my all-time favorite artists. But I can see a little bit of the influence of uh, Dave's pages on the Rocketeer there. It's good stuff. Oh, that's why I like it. Yeah, <laughs> you got a lot of his stuff, yeah. <laughs> well, now it's time for my questions that I ask all my guests. Okay. And the first one, is, this one's easy. What do you like to do for rest and relaxation? Wow. <laughs> I go to the movies. I um, play guitar, write songs. I don't foresee any rest and relaxation for me for the next... Uh, eight months. So I'm not, <laughs> it's hard for me to say, but no, you know, and I, I like to read. I'm actually reading a really interesting book now called The Hero of the Slocum Disaster that's written by Eric Blau. And he was the guy that translated the French lyrics from Jacques Brel's Alive and Well and Living in Paris to English, the Broadway show. And I thought to myself, you know, I think I like Jacques Brel, but maybe I also like Eric Blau because I've only read the lyrics in English and uh, I'm starting to read this novel and I'm starting to find out, yeah, I really like Eric Blau too. You listen to this show, you must have, because you just segued into my next question. <laughs> if you were stuck on a deserted island and could only have one book, what would that book be? Ah, okay. Can I choose two or just one? <laughs> I'll, I'll let you have two. It's, you might be there for a while. Okay. All right. Um, I would probably choose Joseph Campbell's The Myth of the Hero, just because I'm a big fan of his. And as a storyteller, I think reading that book is essential. And then I would choose Umberto Eco's Foucault's Pendulum. I don't know if you're familiar with that book. I'm not. Okay. So Umberto Eco, he's the guy that wrote The Name of the Rose and things like that. Foucault's Pendulum is the story of a bunch of Italian intellectuals that are studying history and playing with computers. And they're particularly studying the history of the Knights Templar. And the Knights Templar was this medieval monastic society of warrior monks that was driven away and disbanded by the church because they could own their own land and they became too powerful. So they were considered a threat to the church. But these Italian intellectuals say, well, what if, what if they weren't really destroyed? What if they actually just were driven underground? And what if they actually, unbeknown to us, became the secret rulers of the world and were behind every single major thing that had ever happened in history? And then they start feeding these facts and information into a predictive computer program. And they say, well, if that was true, what would happen in the future? And suddenly, everything that this program starts predicting would happen in the future starts happening. And they have to figure out whether or not they've accidentally stumbled upon the world's greatest conspiracy. Oh, that sounds like a good one. Yeah. <laughs> now you're off the island. Okay. What is your beverage of choice when you're resting and relaxing? Hmm. Okay. You know, I really like those lime-flavored Perrier's. That's the <laughs> oh yeah yeah. I can go through about six of those. Um, you know, if I'm eating out, I love Thai food, so good Thai iced tea. I developed a good taste for whiskey when I was in Scotland. Actually, I became quite the connoisseur. If I was going to have alcohol, it might be a, a shot of good Scottish whiskey. And if you were an action figure, what would be your accessory? What would be my accessory? Wow, I guess it would have to be my laptop because I got to keep writing. <laughs> <laughs> And in your opinion, 
Who do you think was the most influential hard rock band of the 80s? I will tell you, most influential hard rock band of all time, for me, is Kiss. I take Kiss like a religion, but I, I treat it a whole lot more seriously than that. Um, I am a fanatic. And I will tell you, um, uh, I just had the experience of a lifetime just yesterday. I went to the very first Gene Simmons vault experience. I can't explain to you why I didn't have to pay for it because it's a little bit of a secret, but basically Gene is releasing 160 some unreleased tracks and demos from his 50 year career. Then he's meeting with his fans and talking to them and listening to the songs and playing them back. And he did an acoustic jam with Ace Fraley that was just, uh, I'm still mentally processing it. It was so amazing. So yeah, definitely, definitely Kiss. I know they're a 70s band, but you know they influenced perhaps the next influential band of the 80s, which was Motley Crue. So you know, without Kiss, there is no Motley Crue. Now, do you collect a lot of their memorabilia? Do you have a big collection of Kiss and Motley Crue stuff? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I'm mostly all about the music, but I've collected a fair amount of stuff here and there over the years, too. I mentioned this on a previous podcast with Chris Sabella, because he wrote the um, Kiss Vampirella comic. Oh, nice. My uh, listeners have heard this, that I used to have a copy of Kiss Double Platinum. I got that as a confirmation present, actually. Nice. <laughs> Um, but I do have my CD copy of it now, so that is fun to listen to. Oh, yeah, it's good stuff. It's really good stuff. And if there's anybody out there from Dynamite listening, I am the guy to write the next great Kiss comic. All you got to do is look me up. I promise you it will be as good or better than anything that's been done ever. <laughs> do you have something outlined in your head? Have you been like just noodling things around like, no, oh, maybe I'll do this if I ever had the chance? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I have <laughs> ideas. <laughs> All right, then. Well, the word is out. <laughs> okay, so this is the month people have to get their orders in for Tinseltown. Uh, hits the streets March 28th. I will probably be debuting it a week earlier at uh, WonderCon in Los Angeles. But uh, it is pre-order code January or J-A-N-181155. So that's J-A-N-181155. I think the latest you may be able to pre-order it is the 18th, but you know, talk to your comic book stores. And the reason why it's so important that people pre-order it is because you know I'm a relatively unknown creator, and so is Henry. I mean, we've put out a couple graphic novels and had a couple successful Kickstarters and successful convention appearances over the last five years. But you know, this is our first book that's going to be distributed by Diamond. And the reason why it's great when somebody pre-orders something is that it rarely happens. So when a store sees somebody pre-order something, one, it calls to their attention that the book even exists because it's in a catalog that's almost 600 pages and it's about the size of a postage stamp in the book. It's very easy to miss. And two, it lets them know that there is at least on some level interest in the book. And so they are likely to order not just your copy, but maybe a few other copies as well. And you add that up store by store, case by case, and then hopefully we get enough orders to make the book a big success. Yes. So, and look, it's only a dollar fifty. That's right. So, what do you have to lose? <laughs> Very little, and you'll have a great time reading it. It is a great story. And okay. now you've heard David on the show, so now you know a little more about him. And that's another reason why I do the show, so people get to know who the creators are behind the books, the people actually making these things. Well, thank you so much. I'm so grateful for you allowing me to be on here and, and yak at you. 
<laughs> it's been a pleasure. David, thank you so much for being on Creator Talks. My pleasure. And thank you, David Lucarelli, for being on the show and talking about your upcoming series, Tinseltown. And again, the reason why I'm having this episode out early this week is that the final order cutoff is this Thursday, January 18th. So if you like what you heard, looked at my show notes for the link to the Alterna Press page with Tinseltown posted, like what you saw and said, this is for me, don't delay, order today. And I am still working out the contests for Creator Talks so that you can win tchotchkes and comics and prints. I am looking to launch that in February, so stay tuned for more details. I'll be back next Thursday, January 25th, with a brand new interview. Thank you for joining me for Creator Talks this week. The show is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, YouTube, and also on Amazon Echo and Dot Devices. Just say, Alexa, play podcast Creator Talks to hear the latest episode. In addition, you can listen to the show and follow it through Podbean. Your feedback is greatly appreciated, so please rate and review on iTunes if you like the show or an episode that you heard. Your ratings and reviews go a long way to helping the show, and I can't thank you enough for taking a bit of time to do that. For your convenience, in the show notes of each podcast, I have a link to my iTunes page where you can rate and review the show and see the entire list of shows available. If you haven't heard them all, take a look through. There are living legends and -and up-and-coming comic creators. Tell family and friends who like comics and comic book creators about the show. And to subscribe. The content is free. Just as valued are your comments and feedback. You can reach me through Facebook and Twitter at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod. You can also reach out to me by email. You can find that at my website, creatortalks.com. At the website, you will also find blog posts, reviews of books that I have read that you might want to read too, my catalog of podcasts, and videos and other written articles on the website, creatortalks.com. A hearty thank you to all my guests. It is an honor and a privilege for you to make time to be on the show and talk to me about your work. It is your knowledge and insight into the creative process that makes the show so unique. My thanks also goes out to my family who makes this show possible, especially my executive co-producer, Mrs. Calloway. I'll be back each and every Thursday with a new interview. For Creator Talks, I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. Until next time. <laughs>